Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 8, please? As we continue our study on the history of the early church, and we started a little mini series within our series last week, and today's the second in that mini series called Philip. The Deacon Evangelist, and it's part two. And today we're going to be looking at the sin of simony. The sin of simony. And we're going to be going through Acts chapter 8, verse 14 to 25, and I'm going to start reading in verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him, because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because... You thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound in iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Before we get started, I kind of came to a conclusion. (laughs) It's taken me a minute to come to this conclusion. and Really, I should have kind of spotted this a while ago, but... Evidently, we tend to have quite long messages. And I thought, rather than kind of apologize at the end, as I tend to do, I thought, why not at the beginning 
give some sort of explanation as to the possibility why our messages seem to be so long. And can I suggest that it's partially to do with maybe our inability to, in concise fashion, boil down the meaty um, doctrines of Scripture in order that they're palatable. So I'm saying one of the reasons is, is our own shortcomings as men, as humans, right? Um, but then the other thing is to appreciate that we're trying to unpack deep, difficult, and hard-to-understand truth. And um, so I would just ask you to be um, kind of cognizant of that. If sometimes we tend to go on a little bit late, I think last week... I kind of ended completely unintentionally um, on the parable of the sower. And I think we took about 20 minutes on the parable of the sower because it wasn't even in my notes. But um, at, the, at that point, I felt like it was important to share that to help you to understand. That is, if you didn't already understand. I'm sure some of you already did. But trying to help you understand um, more deeply, more clearly. And so I do apologize for the length of the messages, but I think at the same time, it's real hard, as you're going to see even today, and I might break a record today by actually finishing under an hour, but um, you're going to see today what I mean. And so I say it at the outset. So <clears throat> here we are, where? Geographically, I've got no map particularly for, for where we are today, but can anybody tell me where we are geographically? Amen. We're in Samaria. Which, if you lived in Israel, could be termed as the Midlands. A little bit like we would term like Leicester, Birmingham. Why? Because it's in the middle of the land. <clears throat> Samaria is in the middle of Israel. And the church that had been birthed south of Samaria in Jerusalem has now extended further north. And those that make up the church, that is regular Christians, I say like those of you who are not necessarily in ordained ministry. I'm saying you, you're a Christian, but you haven't been ordained and set apart in a specific sense, but you're a believer. And there's no difference between us apart from our function. And I'm saying leaders ain't better than those who ain't leaders. It's just that we have a different function. And um, with regard to um, the church, it was made up at, in this particular time, in this particular place, with mainly just regular Christians. And these regular Christians have been evangelizing. And I say regular Christians, not apostles or prophets or evangelists, pastors, or teachers. Most of these had not been set apart or, or ordained to leadership. In the main, they were really newly converted young Christians. And the only ones, if you remember, who had credentials at this point, apart from the apostles, are who? The seven deacons who had been set apart in Acts chapter 6 by the apostles. One of them had been killed, martyred, leaving, um, as we saw in chapter 6. 
Another is our main character in chapter 8, who is Philip. And he's got a label to some degree, he's a deacon. Now, Philip, we've been looking at and charting his progress and his development. And we're going to see that even further as the weeks go by. And we see him becoming one of those fivefold ministry gifts to the church that I just mentioned. Um, we find the, five, the four slash fivefold ministry gifts in Ephesians 4, verse 11. And verse 12 gives us the reason. And he says, and he himself, that is Jesus, gave some, not all, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping, for the equipping of the saints, that is, the other believers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. You see that it's not just leaders who are involved in the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ, the edifying of us as a body locally as well as globally is, is not simply and, and, and only based on that which is provided by those in leadership. We all, we're a body, eyes, ears, fingers, hands, hair, eyelashes. We're all a part of the body, supposed to be benefiting the rest of the body. And Philip has been doing the work of a what? At this point, he's a deacon. He's not necessarily set apart yet, we suspect, as uh, one of the fivefold ministry, but he's doing the work of an evangelist at this point and is soon to be identified specifically as such 13 chapters um, and a number of years later in Acts chapter 21, where it says, And the next day that we, w sorry, and the next day. We that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip. But now he's not just called Philip. He's called Philip the Evangelist. He's been set apart specifically now to this particular role, which, as we just mentioned, which was one of the seven, and they abode with him. So here in Samaria, we have preaching heralding the declaration of a message and the message from Philip's point of view is simple and it's bad news about sin in the light of the good news about Jesus verse 5 says Philip preached Christ but then Philip was also used significantly to perform amazing and, ast and astounding miracles we see in verse 7 and then last week in verse 9, we were introduced to a magician, one who practiced sorcery, verse 9. A certain man called who? Simon, who quite arrogantly claimed that he was someone great. And we see the people of Samaria, in response to this boastful claim, agree. Saying in verse 10 that this man is the great power of God. And this has been going on for quite some time, according to verse 11. But everything as they knew it was beginning to change. Because Philip begins to introduce them to the message of Christ. And how many of you know that whenever that happens, things begin to change? 
Whenever the message of Christ is interfaced with an individual, things begin to change. People believe the message. And as a result, respond to the message. They believe, so they respond, verse 12, to the things preached concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Who? Both men and women. How? By being baptized. The fact that they responded is directly related to the fact that they believed. The fact that you or I respond is directly related to the fact that we believe. But in fact, it actually goes deeper than that. How do they respond? Now, I just told you by being baptized, but they didn't respond primarily by being baptized. They responded primarily by believing. Because believing is a response, which then results in the act of baptism, the outward visible act of baptism. You see what's going on on the outside, but you can't see what's really going on on the inside. Baptism is the first thing we see, but it's not the first thing that happens. The first thing that happens is belief or faith, which results in an action. The Bible says without faith, your works are completely dead. Faith without a corresponding action ain't really faith at all. I might say that I have faith. And as James says, okay, as James says in chapter 2, he says from verse 14, actually turn there because I've got to read a sizable portion of scripture. Turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them any food. You do not give them the things that they need to keep them warm, the things for the body. What on earth, what does that profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, if it does not have corresponding action, it's dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. James says, yeah? You know what, brother? Show me, don't tell me, show me. Show me your faith without your works. Whatever. I am going to show you my faith by my works. Now notice how in verse 19 through to 26 now, James will give us three examples of faith that results in action. Here's the first one, verse 19. 
You believe that there is one God. You say you have faith, right? Well, you do well. But even the demons believe and, and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Here's a second example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now there's so much more to this, but we ain't got time to go into this. This is not our text. Look at the third example. He says, likewise, who's the third example? Rahab, was she not, <clears throat> was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, we're going to come back to James. Now, although someone responds to the gospel by believing, as we talked about last week at the end, although someone responds to the gospel by believing, which could even result in baptism, does that mean that they are saved? It could, but it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, well, you know what, they believe and they got baptized, they're definitely saved. No, it doesn't. You're right, Mark. No, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're saved. Because you may have faith that results in works, because you may have faith that results in good deeds. Because you have faith that results in corresponding actions, and it sounds like I'm contradicting myself, but I'm not, it doesn't mean that you're saved. You may have faith that has works, but just because someone responds to the gospel and says, underline says, says in inverted commas, just because someone responds to the gospel and says they believe is not proof of genuine faith. Now we saw this a few years ago if you were with us back then when we went through the book of Mark. Before I quote Mark, let me quote Matthew. Here we go. Matthew chapter 15 verse 8 says, These people... They draw, which people, Lord? Well, he's going to tell us in a minute. These people draw near to me with their mouth. And they honor me with their lips. That's where the says, that's where the things that they say comes from. Their mouth and their lips. But their heart is far from me. Mark chapter 7 verse 6 says, he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, who? You hypocrites. As it is written, you know what a hypocrite is, right? It's a pretender. The Hebrew word for hypocrite is chameleon. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, you pretenders. As it is written, these, this people honors me with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. I quoted it last week. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's because he ignored them the first time. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And you have to read Matthew 7 to get the, the context. And it's, check it. It's the subtle difference between those who believe versus those who profess to believe. Because both can have works. You know, when Jesus in Matthew 7 spoke about the two men who built two houses, do you remember he said one was wise and one was foolish? He says, the foolish man, he heard what Jesus said, right? But he didn't go and do it. The wise man heard what Jesus said and he went and did it. But then check it. Jesus describes both of those men like two houses. And the, 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 the amazing thing about that very simple baby type parable is that it's incredibly far reaching in its implications. Because if you look at the two houses, just imagine them. Two houses, they've got a door, they've got windows, they've got a roof, chimney. On the surface, guess what you can't do you can't tell the difference the difference is invisible because the difference is fundamentally where in the foundation i know julian will appreciate this because julian's an architect something like quantity surveyor quantity or quality quantity surveyor the difference between the two houses is not apparent to the naked eye. The difference is invisible. And it's exactly what Jesus just said. You know what? All the talk and even some of the actions, is, that don't mean nothing. It's, it's at, the, the issue is actually that which is going on where? Invisibly in the heart. The subtle difference between believing and those who profess to believe. There's a great deal of difference between accepting the word of God and believing it. There's a great deal of difference between receiving the word of God and believing it. Can I draw your attention to the subheading of our text? That is if you have a reference edition of the Bible with subheadings in it. Now, I have a Nelson's New King James Version of the Bible, and I've got subheadings that are apart from the text. They're not in the text, but they're just subheadings to kind of help you navigate your way. Sometimes you can't find a verse, and you have to flip through, and then, oh, there's this, the subheading, and it reminds you of the text, right? Subheading. Do any of you have subheadings prior to verse 9? Okay. Now, how many of you have... The sorcerer's faith. Thank you. The sorcerer's profession of faith. In contrast to the sorcerer's genuine, heartfelt, honest, sincere, in line with 
the Word of God type faith. Sometimes subheadings and references can be misguiding and a distraction. Don't stake your life on the subheadings. But in this case, they got it spot on. Now getting back to our text in Acts chapter 8, Luke describes those who respond to the preaching of Philip as men and women. This evidently includes Simon the sorcerer. Verse 13 says, Then Simon himself, check it, also what? Believed. And when he was baptized, he continued, he continued with Philip. And he was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. If you were to look at Simon, you'd be like, hey, praise the Lord. Huh. Can you believe it? Remember what Simon used to do? Look, Simon saved now. You know, oh, you know Simon. Trust me. Simon, Simon was there when Philip was preaching. And forevermore, when Philip gave the invitation to get baptized, Simon was there. Simon got baptized coming out. To the point where, where's Simon now? He's, thank, he's missing. He's out with Philip. Following. Seemingly as a disciple. Just like Judas in the midst of the disciples. Who continued with Jesus. You'd be like, hey, come fellas, says Jesus. Let's just go over to the other side of the Sea of Tiberias. And they'd be like, yeah, amen, come, let's go fellas, come. Oh, who forgot the bread? And and they're having conversations among themselves, including who? Judas. Now, this is one of the reasons, one of the other reasons why I'm longer than I ought to normally be by getting sidetracked. Just like Judas in the midst of the disciples who continued with Jesus, none of the disciples knew that Judas was a fraud. Do you remember around the table they were saying when Jesus said, one of you is going to deny me? They were like, who is it, Lord? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me, Lord? Is it me? One of you is going to betray me, Lord. Who's going to do that? The one who I dipped the sop in. Remember, the impression we get is that none of them knew. They didn't even think, hmm, I know. <laughs> yep, I don't even have to ask no question. I know who it is. <laughs> None of the disciples knew that Judas was a fraud. It's scary. It was even quite possible, check it, that Judas didn't even know that Judas was a fraud. And here in Acts chapter 8, no one knows exactly what is going on in Simon's heart. No one knows exactly what's going on under the surface. Probably not even Simon. On the contrary, we get the impression that Simon was actually quite sincere. And the problem with being sincere is that you can be really sincere, but how many of you know that you can be sincerely wrong? He was a... He was amazed. He amazed others, but now the great amazer. Hey, I'm Simon, the great one. 
Now he's seemingly humbled himself and he's saying, wow, this is heavy. But watch verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent the big guns down to Samaria. Remember, Samaria's north, but Jerusalem's high, so they go down to Samaria to see Wagwan. Isn't it humorous that we see John particularly going back to the place that he had wanted to torch before? Remember, John had wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans a few years before. You can read that in Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 56. Now, he wants to see the Samaritans saved from being torched and not destroyed. Notice it doesn't say, now when the, dis- the disciples who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, that they sent two disciples to them. It says they sent who? Apostles. Not disciples. They sent apostles. Not one, but two. As we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see plurality of eldership in so many different places. Jesus himself sent his disciples out how? Two by two. These are not just disciples. They are disciples, but they're not just disciples. They're apostles. And I mentioned that for a reason. I want you to note that the apostles, namely Peter and John, are the ones that go down. Now, what was it in verse 14 that the apostles had heard about that made them go down? It says that they had heard that Samaria had what? Received the word. Now, very often when we hear that someone's received the word, hey, we bring out the flags and pop the champagne. and But the apostles... Hmm. I'm not so sure that they were like, this is a wonderful thing. I suspect they did say it was a wonderful thing, but that wasn't the only thing that they said. And we're going to see. They heard that Samaria had received the word. Or they heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. You're like, wow, that's amazing. But the apostles know that, you know what, just because they accepted the word of God, it does not mean that the people had all believed. Be careful when someone says that they are a believer. My daughter was in Catford the other day, and uh, Croydon, because you know they don't ramp in Croydon. Is it Potter's house up there? I don't know. Every time I go Croydon, them youths are out there on it. So she was out shopping, innit? And one of them bucked her up like, they never said, you look like you need to get saved. But they felt the need to ask her if she was a Christian. And I mean, and she was like, what, 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 what are you talking about? Of course I'm a Christian. Blah, blah, blah. Like, and this person who asked her if she was a Christian pushed her even further to redefine what she meant by you're a Christian. Like, yeah, what does that mean? Yesterday, we had the evangelism training for all of those who are coming on a trip to Jamaica because we're going on a missions trip. Yes, to benefit socially the people, but also to benefit them with the gospel. 
because it's more important that it gets saved than, you know what I'm saying, that their material needs are met. Their material needs need to be met, but primarily their great need is to get saved and to hear the gospel. And yesterday we heard the same thing. If you're witnessing to someone and you're speaking to them, just because they say, you know, you hand them a track and they say, oh, it's all right, bro, praise God, I'm a Christian. Don't be like, all right, God, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen, all right then, bro, praise God, enjoy your shopping. It's not wrong to say, oh, oh, wait a minute, okay, what church do you go to? You know what I'm saying? Like, when did you actually get saved? And like Rob Hughes yesterday said, it's classic. You hear it very often, when you begin to peel back the layers, it's like, I've been a Christian all my life. And when you hear that one, you know <laughs> you have to take it to the next level. Be careful when someone says that they are a believer. See, the apostles would have realized this. Disciples may pick it up, but they may not pick it up. But apostles, on the other hand, they better pick it up. Or, at least they better be aware. Again, it's under the surface and it's very difficult to identify. Just because it was popping in Samaria and individuals had accepted the word of God, it didn't mean that the people had all believed. See, the apostles would have realized this and that just because men and women had heard and were being baptized didn't necessarily mean that they were all Christians. Disciples, maybe, because they had been converted, apparently. Disciples who became, check it, think about the, think about the apostles. The apostles weren't always apostles, right? They were disciples at first. And they had been converted when they met Jesus. Disciples who had received the gospel and became disciples through believing that same gospel. But disciples who had spent a considerable time with who? With Jesus. But as I mentioned earlier, they had also spent, that is Peter and John, had also spent a considerable amount of time with the other brother with a name beginning with J. Hadn't they? They had also spent time with Judas. And even though they were not able to spot his false conversion before the betrayal of Christ, they definitely were able to detect his sincere, yet sincerely misplaced profession of faith now. Looking at Judas from before the crucifixion, no one knew. But looking back, how many of you know Peter and John were fully cognizant of what was going on with regard to Judas now? After his betrayal, they would have been aware of these things. Now, I don't believe that this was the focus of the disciples. Like, what? What, people got saved? And, what? well, you know what? We're not convinced of that. We're going up there to make sure that scrutinize them, sit down, bring them in, get the, switch the lights off, get the spotlight in their face like, military, like Nazi style and interrogate them. No, I'm not saying that that's how they went up there. <laughs> I 
I don't believe that that was their focus. Verse 15 says, the apostles, verse 15 says, who, when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. These new believers had made a profession of faith. They had been baptized according to Matthew 28, where Jesus is going to all the world, preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing those who believe, right? Then going on to teach them to observe all things that I've taught you. That's discipling them. So this is where they're at. Now, according to the same experience, remember that the 120 had in the upper room? They were in that same place. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Boom. He rose from the dead. They were there. They saw him ascend. So they have faith and they're trusting in him. And then what happens? Jesus says, go to Jerusalem and wait, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So you kind of see a similar pattern with this group of disciples now in Samaria. Plus, we see something here that didn't take place there. And it's that the apostles now lay their hands on them, which adds another twist. And it begs the question that is batted around in theological circles. It begs the question, is that the pattern for today? That is, you put your faith in Christ, and on that basis you get baptized, and then you need to have another experience, which is having elders lay their hands on you in order that you might receive the Holy Spirit. Is that pattern for today? Well, I would say we will see the issue arise again in the next chapter, chapter 9, and then I'm hoping that all will be revealed when we get to Acts chapter 10, when we look at the life of Cornelius and we see his experience with regard to a similar issue. So can you hold on till then? Verse 18 and 19. You probably wouldn't even thought about it if I never mentioned it. Verse 18. Some of you would have. Bible school students. I know, who, I know where you are. Verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he was like, yo. I mean, something evidently happened here that, was, that, took, him, that took his breath away. Be like, I mean, for him to get ready to let go of dough in order to, 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 to acquire it, something must have happened to make him offer money. Verse 19 saying, give me this power. Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is known as the sin of simony which is defined by church history as the buying or selling of spiritual things. The buying or selling of spiritual things. See, the Bible gives us the impression that because we receive freely gifts from God, we should also how? Give them freely. Now, I'm not going to actually take the liberty to go where I could go with this today because I think we've talked about it quite a number of times. Suffice to say, examples of the sin of simony is the selling of religious articles 
that have been blessed, such as chaplets, crucifixes, holy water, holy pictures, quote-unquote, relics, religious candles, religious medals, rosaries, scapulars, statues, and the list goes on, right? In the Catholic Church, the sin of simony also includes matters like a priest paying to be elevated to the position of bishop and other issues related to trying to buy spiritual things with money or the exchange of goods. And in that same category, I would place things like, do you remember John Tetzel, historically speaking? He's the dude who, for the Catholic Church, went around and can't lie, the brother is a little bit like some of the TV evangelists that we see today. And John Tetzel used to go around and he had like a box and he called it a coffer. And basically he said, whenever a coin in the coffer rings, that's when you drop it, right? Whenever a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And you hear the catchphrase? Like I said, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm going to resist the temptation to go there, right? John Tetzel, the buying of indul indulgences. Now, check it. I had to ask myself the question, which one is worse? I mean, Simon's only trying to buy it. These brothers were selling it. Like encouraging people to give financially in order to see their loved ones saved. And the more you give, the quicker they get out. I mean, there ain't even a place called purgatory. It don't even exist. It's not real. Some would say, come on, Robert, man. Surely Simon and his 21st century brethren ain't that bad. Come on, don't you think you're making a, a meal of this? Don't you think you're making a... I was told when I left the church that I was a part of because this was one of the big issues that caused me to have to grab my wife and my kids like Lot getting out of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is one of the things that I was confronted with. Come on, Robert, don't you think you're making a big deal out of this? And I had to say, you know, my brother, I don't think so. This is a very, very serious issue. Times change. Men change, but how many of you know the spirit stays the same? Because spirits don't die. And particularly in these last days. The Bible says in the last days, you have to be careful of doctrines that don't come from heaven. They don't come from God, the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. They come from another spirit. Doctrines of demons. We have to be so careful. And my response to, come on, bruv, don't you think you're making a mountain out of a molehill? My response is, well, you know what? Don't even listen to what I have to say. Listen to verse 20 and listen to not just a disciple, not just an apostle, but an apostle who walked with Christ. Listen to what he has to say. Peter turns round to the house that you and me would look at and not think anything was wrong Peter said to him, your money perish with you. He didn't just say your money perish. Come on, bruv, get off that. 
fix-up. He said, your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now he's saying that this is far more serious than just making a, just a, a doctrinal mistake. Because we all make mistakes. We don't all have it locked. That is our complete understanding of the Bible. But Peter's saying, you know what? You have so got it twisted, it indicates that you're twisted. Strong words, but you know what? It would be, it would be, it would, I, everything that I've said so far would be justified based on what he has just said, but he goes further. Verse 21, and you neither, and you have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your lips, the things that he's saying, even the things that he's doing, he's following. No, he says your heart. Remember we've done a series called Open Heart Surgery. That's why I refer to Mark, because he's going through Mark. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now, I would be careful to say something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, like last week, we have to make mention of the fact that this is a possibility. Not, we, we can't be quick to point the finger. I mean, goodness. Peter is a cut above the rest. Peter is the one that stood up, we saw in Acts chapter 5, and said to Sapphira... Guess what? Looking in her eyes, she was standing there alive like you and me right now. He looked at her and said, the feet of the men that carried your husband out are going to carry you out too. And then she dropped dead. So I'm not going to try and be like Peter. I try, try and scrutinize and look through the congregation right now. And stuff. See if I can determine. You get me? No, none of that madness. Oh my gosh. And that's something else that people do in the name of Jesus. Matthew 7 says we can't judge in that sense because we don't know the heart. We are called to be fruit inspectors, but we can't determine. No. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says your heart's not right. And he gets to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. Remember, confession or profession of the lips does not necessarily parallel the intent of the heart. Confession or profession of the lips does not necessarily parallel the intent of the heart. Now, Peter clarifies and further de defines his diagnosis along with presenting Simon wonderfully with a prescription. Dr. Peter, verse 22. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. It's not even like, this is definite. It'd be like, hey, you are so out there, bruv. I can't even guarantee you. Maybe. The Lord may forgive you. You see, this is deep, isn't it? And he says, 
For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Now check it. Bound by iniquity or, synonymously speaking, bound by iniquity or captive to sin. John chapter 8. Jesus said to those Jews who what? Who said they believed in him. Be like, oh, you look believe? I'm oh, safe, man. Cool. I don't need to tell you guys nothing else then. You believe in it. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Not just because you believe, you know. If you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. They answered him, check it. We are Abraham's descendants. Now you know who he's talking to, right? He's not actually talking to his disciples. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Who are they? Hypocrites. They say with their lips, but their hearts are far from God. And hear what they, hear what they say. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say that you, that you, that is, how can you say that we will be made free? Like we're in bondage. Like we're captive. Jesus answered them and said, huh. probably never even raised his voice. But most assuredly, like definitely, categorically, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a what? Slave to sin. Bondage, captivity, whoever commits sin, or let me further define that because we're all finished, right? If, that's, if that is true. <laughs> we're all finished. But... Who's writing this? John. Are we going to hear John say something again? Not in his... What do you call this? Gospel. But in his epistle. See? Let me just... Let me just... Let me just quote it again. In a way that is more understandable. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever practices sin... As a lifestyle. Not just committing one sin. No. Practices sin as a... Before I got saved, I used to go... It's my best example. Before I got saved, I used to go to football. Practice. Guess when I went? Once every six months? No, I don't think I'd be on the team. I used to go football practice every single Week, sometimes two, three times a week. Why? Because it's called football practice. First John chapter one. First John chapter one, starting at verse three. Listen to the same John. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness, right? You're less the law. And you know that 
he has manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him, you remember he was talking about stuff like that with reference to what Jesus said a little while ago in John. Whoever abides in him does not what? Does not practice sin. Whoever sins, that is practice it, has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, don't let anyone deceive you. Check it. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous. Now, check it. Who practices righteousness like never, ever, never, ever doesn't do anything but righteousness? So I'm saying, no one. But you practice righteousness as a lifestyle. That's why we can look at David and be like, hmm, boy, how on earth could a man do a thing like that? Well, you know what? Every single one of us times 10 to the multiple of X amount could do exactly what David did. But you know what? If you were to look at David for a minute, you'd be like, mm-mm, that brother ain't saved. You would have looked at that house and you would have de determined the foundation. But guess what? You would have been wrong. He did sin, and he sinned horrendously. But you don't read about David doing that again. And you didn't read about him doing that before then. Why? Because it wasn't his practice. He who practices righteous you sin and you fall now and again i heard a fantastic analogy about those who are righteous who from time to time fall into sin and it's the man he's going to work he's got his business suit on he's got his briefcase and he's got his laptop and he's about to head out the door opens the door he's running late he needs to catch his train doesn't see his son who's two years old playing in the mud trips over his son guess where the man ends up in the mud do you think he's happy about that? He is absolutely belligerent. He's, I gotta go in and get close. Why, what is you doing that you should, oh, I shouldn't be shouting, you're my son, it's not your fault. He's not happy. He's got mud all over him, he's dirty. His son, on the other hand, is there squelching in the mud with his wallet and boots on. He loves it in the mud. And that's the difference between the Christian who falls into sin absolutely abhors it. God, how can I find myself in this place? I hate it here. The other person, the sinner now, they love it there. That's them. All day. You see the difference? A sinner will be there and sinning and don't business. Like Judas stealing money out of the treasure. Judas was the treasurer and he was stealing money. He was a thief from morning all day. And you see it come out. Jesus, money. That's a hard one. For Judas. Ah. And then he made his choice. Why? Because that was his practice. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteous is righteous, just as he is righteous. 
He who sins or practices sin is of the devil. I mean, that's what Jesus went on to say to them scribes and Pharisees, isn't it? Our fathers Abraham, excuse me, says Jesus, I don't think so. Let me just correct that. Uh -uh. Where's the pipex? I don't think God is your father. Talking about Abraham is our father, like relating it back to God is our father. No, your father is the devil, you hypocrites. For the devil has sinned from, you see, the devil has sinned when? Five minutes ago? From the beginning, it's his practice. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin, does not practice sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot practice, he cannot practice sin because he's been born of God. Now watch verse 10. Verse 10 is now going to make the distinction between the genuine believer and the professing believer. Watch the distinction. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he all. Ouch. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Now that's another message for another time. Listen to Romans chapter 6. We're talking about being bound by sin. We're talking about being captive to iniquity. It was the other way around. Bound in iniquity, says Peter, or captive to sin. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, God will forgive me. Certainly not. How shall, and if that is the response, something is wrong. I can say, man, it's all so good. God's forgiving. If, if, if I hear you say that, I will tell you like Peter, something's wrong. If you think that you can sin and it's a light thing, like, it's all good. God will forgive me. Something's wrong. Certainly, this particular perspective cannot be in the heart of the genuine believer. How shall we, we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now again, so much to unpack. Verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's why when you ask that person, when did you get saved? And they're on some, I've been a Christian all my life. You know something ain't right. Because there's a point in your life where if you can't remember when you got saved, the only excuse you would have is like someone like the truth. You remember he done that song um, where he's, he's given his testimony. And he says, you know what? I ain't got no testament. I was never on drugs. You get me? I wasn't running up and down on road with a nine. I wasn't stabbing people and killing people. I was never on, I, I ain't got that kind of testimony. The only person who ought to be able to say, I'm not really sure the day that I got saved because I've been brought up in a Christian household 
But they will add on the end of that. They will tag on the end of that. Dot, dot, dot. I know that I was a sinner. And if I hadn't at a certain point. I might have done it when I was five. If I hadn't at a certain point said. Father forgive me. As much as just stealing a cookie out of the cookie jar. Is a minor quote unquote sin. I've sinned. Forgive me. See. So we ought to walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this. Now you know this set me free. With struggles that I had years back with sin. This set me free. Check it. The first step in the road to deliverance from sin for you in the life of a believer, for me as a believer, the first step is knowing something. It's not doing anything. Oh, I've got to stop going to that place and, you know, I've got to, oh, I've got, I've got to cut off the internet. Oh, I've got to stop watching television. That's good to do that. Make a covenant with your eyes, right? But it doesn't start there. It starts with knowing this. That our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. And it goes on in Romans 6. For he who has died. You see, if you, if, if you have put your trust in Christ. We just read that you've died with him. That your baptism, whether you, some people, some believe it's not phys, it's literal baptism, it's, you know what I'm saying, it's the baptism into the body of Christ, whatever, whichever of the two you want to choose. If you've, if you've come into a relationship with God through Christ Jesus, then you, your old nature, your old man, he says, is dead. It's not, well... Yours might be dead, but mine ain't really dead. He's, he's, he's on my case all the time. Now, I know what you mean. But technically, the old nature's dead. And if you can appreciate, if, if you can know that, what? Huh. Wait a minute. All this time been... You know, there's a verse that talks about the, about the devil in regard to when, when eventually he's seen for who he is. The impression is, what? All this time, <laughs> all this time, you had me under your control. See, he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, Acts chapter 8 verse 23 says, Bound by iniquity. Or captive to sin. If you're a believer, you're not captive to sin. You're not bound to sin. Well, what, Pe what insight Peter has that Simon isn't saved. He's just a professing Christian. He, like we saw last week in the parable of the sower, they call it, or the parable of the seeds. I like to call it the parable of the soils because that's what it's really talking about. It's talking about the heart. The soil. We see that this man is a false convert. Simon a sorcerer. Check it, how sad it would have been for Simon a sorcerer to continue going to church for years 
and never have his false conversion confronted. Notice it took experienced leaders to discern the problem. Leaders who had been through a similar experience. That's why, don't try and be a leader overnight. I don't business how great you can teach or preach. Don't try to assume leadership overnight. The only things that grow overnight are like mushrooms. And you know you can step on them like in a moment and they're gone. The things that... Jesus says, he who's faithful in a little will also be faithful in much. If you're not given time to be faithful in a little, you ain't, you ain't, you ain't ready to be given the much. And I can say that confidently in the sense that it's not down to ability and cleverness. And and through that process of serving, through that process of humbling yourself and not grasping for, through that process, God will grow you. God will grow me. I'm getting ready to go to Jamaica, not just to plant a church, but to plant churches what the dickens do I know about planting churches? But you know, over the past six years, the Lord has been growing me. And even now, getting ready to go, I'm still not ready. Mark's not ready. Michael's not ready. But you know, through this experience, through this time, God's going to grow us. And God is in the process of growing you. Beg you don't try and grasp leadership until the time is right. Until the time is right. Where was I? These disciples who had become apostles had over a process of time been able to see the, the Judas syndrome. They'd been able to understand and appreciate it. And even in appreciating it, like I said, we need to be careful how we administer that. Leaders who had been through a similar experience who could have recognized in Judas what we see here in Simon, who could have diagnosed that Simon was in the bond of iniquity, just like Judas. And you know what? We see Simon respond in the same way that Judas responded. Watch. With remorse, not repentance. Peter said to Simon, repent. Remember? This is the diagnosis. It's bad. It's... But here's the prescription. Repent and ask God for forgiveness. But instead, Simon is, check it. He's unable to pray for himself. He's unable to recognize his sin and his gravity. Simon is only concerned about the consequences. Look at verse 24 and 25. Then Simon answered and said, Oh, Peter, pray for me. No, Peter said, You ask for forgiveness. Now notice that. He says, You pray for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. He's worried about what? The consequences. You know, one of the first things, if not the very first thing that we see when we come to be confronted with the gospel and our sinfulness 
is how it has offended God. Do you remember Joseph, when he was confronted with the opportunity to sin? What did he say? Did he say, how can I do this great evil and sin against your husband? He didn't say that. He said, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? See, that's the true heart of repentance. David busted in Psalm 51. Lord, it's against you have I sinned, and my sin is ever before me. Verse 25, so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, bringing the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Apostles, they're heavy. Apostles, are heavy. thank God. Amen. Thank God for good leadership. I thank God for good leadership. You know, you here at South London, whatever goes down around here ain't just down to us. We're accountable. And hopefully that should give you a, 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 an element of confidence. Because it's not like, okay, well, what should we do around here? P. E. Let's just do our own thing, innit? We can't do our own thing. Because we got brothers breathing down our necks. Like, what's going on? And we're accountable. Thank God for good leaders who hold us accountable, who will tell us the truth, who will speak the truth, as it says in Ephesians, but speak it in love. But speak the truth nonetheless. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Everything's all right, yeah. Now, Two minutes and we're done. Turn with me back. Remember I said to you we're going to read James 2 and we're going to go back to James 2. Go back to James 2. How many examples did I say he was going to give you of faith? Three. Three examples. Did you note... that he gave us three examples but only two of them were valid? James chapter 2, verse 21 spoke about who? Abraham. Valid. Not just talking it, genuinely believed it. Counted to him as righteousness. The sec the, sorry, Abraham was the second example. Who was the third example? I'm going to come back to the first one. Who was the third example after Abraham? Verse 25, Rahab the hooker. Rahab the slapper. Rahab the prostitute. That goes to show you that God can save anyone. And she was genuinely, she had genuine faith. She genuinely believed. But the first example was who? Someone said us, not us. Who's the first example? The first example are demons, devils, or fallen angels in verse 19. He says, check it. You believe that there is one God. What, you believe it? That's good. You do well. But you know what? If that's all you do, you're, on the, you're in the same category as the demons. Because the demons believe. They believe even more than you. You know why? Because they believe it to the point where they tremble. 
Do you tremble? I don't think so. That is the individual that falls into that category. That's why they can sin and, and like what? It's nothing. Forevermore, when I see God, I've got, some answers. I've, got, I've got some questions to ask him. Just because you believe, see, you foolish man or woman, you need to realize that believing ain't it because the demons believe. A classic example of those who believe but do not repent. And they practice sin. Last verse, Second Peter. Oh, Second Peter, chapter 2. Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 10. On the basis of all that we just talked about. Therefore, knowing that, in the light of that, Brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and your election sure. Bible says we need to examine ourselves whether we are in the faith. Let's make our calling and election sure. Amen. Now, I can say it without feeling guilty and bad. I would have found it very hard to communicate all of that in half an hour or in 40 minutes or in 45 minutes. So if, I, if, I, if, if it was too much and it was too long, I ask you to forgive me and I ask you to pray for me uh, and pray for anyone else who comes up and has to share God's word with you because it's, it's just not easy. Next week, we're going to see Philip encounter a black African statesman. And um, until then, let's talk about the Lord. Let's talk to the Lord about that which we just heard. Amen. Father, thank you for um, just the clarity that comes from your word. Even though we have to dig it out like diamonds, it says in Proverbs 1. This stuff ain't sitting around on the surface. We've got to dig deep, Father. But it's all good. Because this is our life. Our whole life is going to be a life of discovering who you are and what it is you have to say, how you feel about this and how you feel about that. That's our lives now that we've been regenerated. That's our lives now that we've been snatched out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. When we were there, we didn't care about these things. But now this is our life Father, I ask that you would give us a greater appetite for your word. Give us a greater appetite for your truth so that we can walk in it. Delight our hearts, oh God, to follow you. But how are we going to follow you when we, when we can't read the directions, when we can't read the map? We've got sat-nav in the, in the glove compartment and Either one is not working or it's useless, or we, we don't even, we don't even, I, I know where I'm going. No, we don't. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We need to, we need your, we need your bread daily. And so, Father, I pray that 
you would just give us a, an appetite for, 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 for your truth. And you're one with your truth. You're one with your word. You, Father, Jesus is the word become flesh. And so help us, Lord, as we grapple with it. Help us as we, as we try to understand it. And then help us as we try to implement it. Let that word become flesh in our lives. I pray. Father, help us as we try to make our calling and our election sure. Help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In Jesus' name, amen.